listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and I'm so excited because on today's episode, we have a wonderful musician. I'm so proud to have this man on the show, in fact. He is a songwriter. He is a jingle writer. You may or may not recognize the name, but boy, do you know the songs he's written. He's written jingles that over the last 50 years are staples of, well, American culture, really. I Love New York. I mean, who doesn't know that? Nationwide is on your side and dozens of others. For my money, this man is a living legend. He is known as King of the Jingle. I'm talking about Mr. Steve Carmen. Mr. Carmen, welcome to the Rick Z Show. Rick, Mr. Carmen was my father. I'm Steve. <laughs> okay, Steve, you got it. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to have you on the show, and we got so much to talk about, so I'm just going to jump in with my very first question. You've got three notes, four notes, five notes. You've got a simple melody that's got to stick in people's heads, and you got to take that and run with it and sell sneakers and cars and beer and who knows what. How do right. you do that? How is that possible? Uh, ha, ha, ha. That's a very good question. Loaded, it, loaded question. It's a loaded question. Interestingly enough, I have always looked at composing and advertising as a business, as a, uh, you know, you have a job to sell or to write a song that it used to be 60 seconds and now it's 30 seconds if you can get away with it. But to write a song that delivers the message about a product and do it in the most unique way possible. I sat down at a piano and, uh, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, Nationwide is on your side. They wrote the line. I did not write the, the key line in, I would say, uh, 80 85% of the things that I've done. But I wrote all the rest of the lyrics, and you sit down and you try to tell a musical story in a way that has not been heard before. And Rick, forgive me, I'm going to take a little left turn. When I knew I was going to talk to you, I, I realized that you are used to talking to jazz players and jazz musicians, right? Uh, not always, but we've had a fair share of jazz guys on the show, yeah. Oh, okay. But I always thought, you know, I, I, when I was a kid, I played in a band when I was 15 years old. We used to play a song, whatever it was, 12-bar blues, whatever it happened to be, and then someone would take a solo to that, and that kind of made it jazz. You had a frame within which you started, and then you could take a break for uh, a minute or two, and then the saxophone, I was a saxophone player, and the trumpet player would take a hunk and everybody would have a solo and by the time you finished up it was seven or eight minutes of music in the advertising world they've got a boundary on both ends so you really you only have a little bit of space and no matter how great the players were and i've worked with absolutely the best in the business there was no way to say that this is Hal Blaine. You know the name Hal Blaine is a drummer. Hal was the drummer in what they called the Wrecking Crew. In Cal he played out of California primarily. He played on every great record of the 60s and 70s and into the... A phenomenal drummer. Legendary. Absolutely. And Shelly Mann is someone else in that category. Another great. But when I booked them on a date, they had 60 seconds to play. And 55 of it were, you know, really, uh, this has got to be this over here, and it's got to be that over here, and here's where the lyric is. And, it, you know, the framework does not, did not allow for a great jazz player to just let go. So the, what I always looked for in a great musician was someone who could in, come in, sit down, and read the part, play what I wrote. And I, as when I say I worked with some great players, that's what I always expected as the, the conductor, as the composer, and the arranger. I wanted someone to play what I wrote. I did not need someone to take off and play four choruses of jazz, and I worked with some phenomenal players. So I always looked, you ask how the 
the the music evolved. It was I wrote something. I had it, you know, wrote it down, and I had it in my head, and I know what I wanted to hear, and I just wanted someone terrific to execute it. And whatever the idea was, what I wanted was someone who could really deliver what I heard in my head. And I worked, as I said, I worked with some phenomenal people. But you wouldn't know that this was Lorendo Almeida playing the guitar. Or, uh, I mean, you know, some great people. And so it's a business. It was a business and every piece of music had a boundary on it. And I remember one time, oh, it's got to be, I don't know, 40 years ago, I decided to do an album. Finally, I'm going, you know, I had... Uh, worked with a lot of great players, and, I, and the first song I wrote was seven minutes long. So <laughs> it, it, after working on 30 seconds, you know, that kind of stuff. But, it, you know, the, the idea of writing in the advertising music business, it's, it's a business. It's not this uh, smoke-filled room where everybody's going, yeah, man, terrific, yeah, yeah. It doesn't, have, doesn't work that way. Well, you've written some enduring melodies. Do you have to chase after those melodies, or do you got to kind of sit back and wait for them to come? Well, as I say, it's a business. You know, you, you have 30 seconds within which to deliver the sponsor's message. Please, I know you're not standing up now, but it's okay. <laughs> it's, you know, the sponsor's message is what's all important, and you try to find a musical way, as I say, to do it differently, and you, you just write it out, and uh, or it comes to you. I play guitar. I play, mostly I would write on the piano, although now I have an electronic studio in my home. I want to say I have a magic hat in my closet. I please, you can't tell anybody about this. I promise but I will. I put on this hat, and I rub the band three times, and I can write the best piece of music you ever heard. <laughs> I, I find that easy to believe, because I can't think of any other way you've done all this great work. I'm wondering, because you write other types of songs, can any great songwriter write a jingle, or is there a specific skill set that it takes to, to write a jingle? Well, I think there is a specific skill set, and I think the skill set is the discipline of knowing that you must deliver this message within this specific amount of time. It just can't be, uh, you know, hey, let's begin here and make it great musically. I know a lot of great musicians who wanted to work in the advertising business, in the jingle business, and they couldn't cut it because they, well, how do you start? By the time I get going, 30 seconds is over. So there is a discipline to it, but there is also an inspiration. And the inspiration is, again, to try to do something original that you haven't heard before. Because if you think about advertising music, whether you listen to your music on a jazz station or a top 40 station or whatever kind of music station, the advertising in it is all basically coming from one source. So it's got to have its own sound. And it does have its own sound. There's very little breathing room in advertising. Put it on, and you got to deliver the message, and you're over. And you can't run over 30 seconds, or, or use the old days. I keep saying the old days about 60 seconds. 60 seconds was such a luxury to be able to write something and maybe put something in there where it could breathe a little bit. I was just going to ask, if you had to pitch your songs at any point to these agencies or companies, or did they come looking for you saying, this is what we need? Well, I started out, uh, I was a... Uh, kid in high school. We played in a high school band very briefly. The guitar player was a guy named Walter Rame who went on to having a career in the jingle business. The trumpet player was a uh, player named Dick Berkey. The uh, drummer was a kid named Bobby Casado who later changed his name to Bobby Darren. And I was a saxophone player and the only one of us who was really a musician was Eddie Ocasio. He was the piano player. 
So it automatically became Eddie Ocasio and his orchestra. And Eddie uh, was the only one who did not go into the music business as a final career. He became a gynecologist. Very different career. Very different. He had a very different point of view. But he was he was the only one that could really read music. So we all, you know, we had our kid band. He was always writing music and playing music. And at, at one point, someone, believe it or not, I acted in a low-budget movie. I want to, I, I don't want to tell you it was a porno movie because it has, you could play it on Channel 4 right now. <laughs> That's the kind of movie it was. I mean, nothing, but I acted in a movie and the producer was looking for music and I said, I can write music. And he says, I have no money. He says, okay, we'll work out something. So I asked him, I want to own the copyrights to the music. And he said, fine. And we got, I think I paid the guys 25 bucks a piece with maybe six or seven guys. And I wrote out some lead sheets, players did this. And in the space of four years, I think I did 30 of these movies. Wow. And that's how I learned the craft. And I met a lot of young guys like myself then, and one of them was working in advertising. He says, well, you can write 60 minutes of music. Can you write 60 seconds of music? That's a piece of cake. So I went in, and that's how I got started in the jingle business. That's amazing. You know, speaking of jingles, one of your most prominent jingles, I would say, is for Budweiser. Yes. This is something that I've heard pretty much my whole life. Anyone can relate right. to this. I, I want to play this. If you don't mind, I'd like to play this I song. I don't mind at all. All right, listen up, everybody. This is going to bring back some memories. This is the great Steve Carman with his Budweiser commercial. Here comes the king. Here comes the big number one. Budweiser beer, the king is second to none. Just say Budweiser, you've said it all. Both of them were the most prolific songwriters. 
They wrote, ain't no mountain high enough. Let's go get stoned. So many of the early Diana Ross, Marvin Gaye hits. That's right. But I used to joke with Valerie. I said, that kind of stuff is going to make you famous. From the advertising business, you're going to make a living. I had no idea that was her. Heard that a million times, and I am somewhat yep, familiar that's with Valerie. They just used it in the movie The Joker. And, I didn't uh, know that. Yep, it's in there someplace. And but uh, it's Valerie. I mean, that's Valerie. You know, we oh. want to book a date. Who do you book? You book uh, Kenny Karen and uh, Jerry Keller and Leslie Miller and Valerie Simpson and Casey Sissick, and you got the best group in the world. No doubt. A lot of these end up in movies in the end too. I don't know if you were yep. aware of this. You may be, but your uh, Budweiser. When you say Bud, you've said it all. That one. That is prominently featured in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He, no, it's not that one. That's Here Comes the King. That's Here Comes the King? I, I forget yes. which one it is. I just remember bum, that. Bum, 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 when you say, when, bum, 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 here comes the king, here comes the big That's right. One. That's bum, right. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, and that's Valerie. I mean, they show that, uh, they show a screenshot of the television in that scene in Close yep. Encounters. They play the entire yep. commercial. My mother loved it. <laughs> <laughs> How did that happen? Was Spielberg a big fan, or did they need a way to pay for the flying saucer? I mean, what, what, what was that? No, but Steven Spielberg, interestingly enough, has used two of my songs. He used I Love New York, which you spoke about earlier, Yeah. in a movie called The Terminal with Tom Hanks. And, I don't know if you remember it. He's someone comes in from a, a foreign country and he's stranded in the airport and he literally lives in the airport terminal for eight or nine yeah, months. Ca Catherine Zeta-Jones is in it. Correct. And, sure, I know that. Right, movie. and he and he walks through the airport and there on a television set they're playing "I Love New York." And but Steven Spielberg seems to like my music because that was the second one he used. And the first one was I want to say this is 1975, 76, something like that was Close Encounters. His music coordinator called and we made a deal for it and I licensed it for the use in that movie and every once in a while I'm watching a movie with my kids or with grandchildren and I say, shh, shh, here comes the important part. <laughs> It's one of my favorite parts. I love that scene where he's in the living room, you know, throwing dirt through yeah, his window. Yeah, making and, this mountain of dirt, that, and, you know, a mountain out of dirt. That's great. Now, do you remember the first time that you heard one of your jingles become a huge smash and on the radio and television where you, you couldn't get away from it? What was that like? Well, the, the first hit, you want to call it, I've had a hit. You know, I joke around and say, you know, the only sounds that are ever heard when my music is being broadcast, meaning advertising, is the slamming of a refrigerator or the flushing of a toilet. <laughs> There's no, people don't applaud when you, you know, when you hear a commercial. Right. The way they would when they hear a, quote, regular song. The first real hit that I ever had was, you can take Salem out of the country, but, which was for Salem cigarettes. Now, Salem cigarettes went off the air in, I guess, what, 1970, 1971. Yeah. But this was, you can take Salem out of the country, but you can't take the country out of... Salem, and it was a huge, in those days there were three networks, and if you got a commercial on the networks, the entire country saw it in a week. Yeah. Just the way it worked. Today, one of the great difficulties that advertisers have in establishing any kind of individual identity is the fact that there are 7,000 cable channels, an equal number of radio uh, or audio out, and you can't really make an impression the way there were, you know, three, really, three networks in those days, and if you got on the networks, you were a star. And I would, so you talk about one type, one kind of recognition with Budweiser, I took my kids, we were on a vacation in Tampa, Florida, and I went to the Budweiser Brewery, and it was the second year that When You Say Bud has been on the air. And 
And I went in like a civilian. I paid my way in. I have three daughters, and we went, you know, we walked around the brewery. And sure enough, there in the middle of, you know, as we're walking around, they're playing my music. And I looked at my kids, and they said, I wrote that. And, they, you know, they kind of knew it anyway. But that's the kind of thrill that I would get when I, you know, someone other than myself. I was once in an elevator, and someone was whistling. <laughs> I can't whistle well. You can take Salem out of the country, but... The elevator's going up, and I'm standing behind him, and this guy's just grooving along, and he's singing my song. That's the kind of thrill that you get. Do you ever want to tell them? Do you ever want to say, hey, that's me? But, you know, then... No, no, no. No, I once got stopped by a cop. Talk about, you know, driving at one time up when I lived in New York was really roaring. And I was going up, and they were doing some sort of a ceremony honoring the song, and I was screaming up the New York State Thruway. And sure enough, the guy... The cop pulled me over. I, w I was exceeding the limit, I will tell you, Rick, sir, between <laughs> you and me. And please don't tell anybody, but I was pushing it a little. <clears throat> and I said to, you know, okay, let me license the registration. I said, I'm going up to Albany now. They're going to honor me at a service because I wrote I Love New York. He says, okay, let me see your driver's license and registration. You know, he didn't care. So after that, I don't say, hey, you know that? I wrote that because it doesn't mean anything. Uh, Except to me. I would have let you go. That's just me. Thank you. I know. You, and you see, you have a heart. <laughs> let, let me ask you something, Steve. Uh, well, yes. let, well, we'll stay on the Budweiser uh, commercial for a second. Just to ask you, why all the key changes? I, I, there's so many subtle little uh, key changes. Is, is that a technique? Uh, or when, You know, when I... Mm, you know, it's interesting you talk about key changes in advertising. There's no time. When you have a... If musically, if you wish to change the key... You gotta have a key to start from so you can change it to something. Yeah. But in a commercial, there's no time to establish a key. So the, it's really not key change that you, I don't believe that you're referring to. I think what you're talking to is that, wow, this sounds different. It sounds unlike what preceded it and what is going to follow it. And that, when that happens, I know I did my job. Because you, you perceive it as a key change, but it was just some different kind of a different kind of a hook that got your attention, that kept your attention. Yeah, it sounded like a mo modulating keys to me somehow. Yeah, well, don't quit your day job. <laughs> I, I won't. I'm a musician by, by trade, so I, I, uh, I'm going to have to what question. What instrument do you play? Uh, I play guitar. Uh, this is my main instrument, is guitar. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, I started that way, and I, you know, I have a, two guitars sitting around in my studio. I'm looking at one of them now in a little stand, and it's, you know, I try to keep up on it, but there's a lot of other things that, as one gets older, there are many distractions, and, uh, but I love the guitar. Absolutely. I, I love it, too. I love it, too. And you know what I'd like to do now? I want to I go back. I want to I take you back before the jingles before the film work that you, you did, before you were in college, yep. back to your childhood, back to the Bronx where you were born and raised. Yep. You lived with your brother Arthur, your two parents. Did, were there any other siblings? Nope. Just uh, Art, myself, Art was seven years older, me and my mother and father. We had a one-bedroom apartment in the West Bronx, and I lived there uh, my entire, well, no, how do I say this? My mom died in the year 2000, and I had, that was, that was, apartment was the only home I ever knew as a kid. I moved out to get married. Wow. It was one bedroom, my, my parents had the bedroom. My brother, Arthur, is, is, is a famous, was, he passed two years ago, but he was a very famous doctor. 
and he did medical research primarily. And when someone has a heart attack, I'm gonna do a little commercial for him. When someone has a heart attack, the enzyme transaminase is secreted by the heart muscle into the bloodstream. And by measuring the amount of transaminase in your bloodstream, the doctors can tell the severity of the heart attack. And my brother discovered that enzyme in blood. So they, you know, occasionally they, they call the measurements Carmen units, named for his discovery. So my brother was a big star. And I was the kid that slept in the kitchen, and I tried to, you know, we had an old piano that I have no idea where it came from, and I was told to be quiet because my brother was studying, and that was my introduction to the music business. It's just an amazing story. Yep. I mean, you had doctors and engineers in your family, and here you come along, and you are a musician. Were your parents at all concerned or disappointed even that you didn't follow in your brother's footsteps and, and go into science? I can't say they were disappointed, but they were, I don't know, how do I say this in a way that it's understandable? Here I am now, we're talking to you, I'm allowed to put a date on this, right? Absolutely. It's in the year 20, 2020, and I'm now 83 years old, and I look back on the times when I was 15 and 16 years old living in that apartment, and they put up with me, even though I was not... Uh, you know, following the mold of being a, what, what I used to call a professional man, you know, someone with a degree. I, I never, I went to college for about a month. Then I went on the road with Bobby Darren. But my parents were tolerant of me. And I think about today, you know, I can look back on it and say, wow, I wish I had done this and wish I had done that. But, you know, they were straight as, straight as an arrow. They, my dad worked for the city. My mother had a degree in business. And my brother was certainly the star doctor, and I was the kid in the kitchen, you know, plunking on a guitar. I paid 30 bucks for my first guitar. They allowed it. They did not encourage it, but they allowed it. I was unbelievably lucky in that area because some parents would really bust your chops and say, put that thing away. You know, my parents used to say, music is for the weekend after your regular job. And I stuck with it, and I must give credit to Bobby Darren, Bobby Casado, because Bobby had this free spirit. And he wanted to be an entertainer, and we met in high school. I was playing saxophone then. He became the drummer, and he encouraged, because I had one of my, my dad had an old mandolin at home, and I learned to play that, and Bobby encouraged me to buy a guitar. And we started to do an act together. I was, you know, would play guitar and sing the harmony parts, and he would sing the lead. And he encouraged me not to be afraid to break the mold. And I got to tell you, Rick, this to me is the mantra of my life. Don't be afraid to say no. Don't be afraid to break the mold that everyone is in. And that's how you come up with something original. Well, you broke the mold, and you also created new molds, and you're a pioneer in your own field like your brother is a pioneer. And and you come from a long line of pioneers. Even your mother was really a pioneer of sorts because she went to college in 1927, which You're right. women did not right. really do, but she prized education to that degree, didn't she? Correct. That's absolutely a great way to put it. She, education was a big thing, and I got my education. You know, what do they say? What school do you go to? The school of hard knocks? <laughs> I, can't really, I can't really say that because my parents provided a home for me. I knew at whatever time I came home, there was always food in the refrigerator, and when, on the days when I wasn't working, there was dinner on the table. And I feel blessed literally blessed that I had parents who were willing to take the chance to let me explore my imagination. And I hope that young people today have that sense 
that they can go out and, you know, you can try something different and you may fall flat on your face, but the times that you don't make up for all the, all the errors, you know, and the, the failure is the greatest teacher in the world. And you go through a bunch of failures and then one day something clicks and you say, hey, you know, uh, Rick, what I used to do when I, in the very beginning, when I f first was able to work with the string section, I would ask the engineer to uh, record the strings separately. Today, everyone does every track separately. But to record me a separate str string track so I could take it home and listen to the, how I wrote it and see if I actually got what I want, what I heard in my head, did I actually get it out of the strings. And I used everything as an opportunity to learn. And it didn't require a college degree, and it didn't require someone's permission. All it took was the goal, I want to come up with something different. And when you play the Budweiser song, everything, all the beer music around that time was, I think that was 1970, was all uh, big bands, rock and roll, and a lot of you know heavy singing, whatever, and I wanted to come up with something different. And what do you think of when you think beer music? To me, is a tuba. A beer hall, that kind of sound. And I saw why I wrote when you say but it starts with a tuba and three trumpets. You know, and the sound was, it just was, got your attention immediately. And then when you get somebody terrific like Valerie Singer, Simpson to sing it, you're doing okay. That's absolutely. It's the most memorable beer commercial I've ever heard. That's for sure. And yeah, thank you. I'm sure others uh, would say the same. And if you don't mind me saying, as you mentioned, transaminase is measured in Carmen units, but I think the jingle is measured in Carmen beats. So I'll say that. Oh, <laughs> write it down. Maybe I'll wait. I should stand up for that. Say that. <laughs> Carmen beats. I say Carmen beats. Carmen beats all the way. I love it. So you still have the mandolin? I do. You know, interestingly enough, another, you know, I'm, I'm of the age now where the great players that I worked with are, uh, they're gone. Many of them, most of them are gone. It's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about Ronnie Zito, because he he's, stands out. But one of the great players I worked with was Eric Weisberg. Eric was the banjo player on the dueling banjos. And he was the uh, guitar player for many years, the lead guitar player working with Art Garfunkel. And, I mean, this, these guys, he was a master. Oh, yeah. And uh, one day Eric came down to the house, and over the years, you know, see, here's the kind of musician I was. I really was, I'm not trained, I never studied, but I asked a lot of questions. And one of the guitar players, who was a tremendous player named Sal DeTroya, one day he came in with a new guitar. I said, what kind of guitar is that? He says, oh, it's a D'Angelico, or it's uh, you know something of a great guitar player. I said, get me one. He says, what do you mean? He says, buy me a guitar. So next session was two weeks later, whatever, and he came with the guitar. I paid him for it, and I had the guitar. And then, I don't know, with the 12-string, I think uh, Glenn Campbell was playing a round-bottom 12-string guitar. I forget who, Ovation, I think, was the maker of the guitar. Stu Scharf was another wonderful player that I worked with. And Stu came in playing this. I had asked for a 12-string guitar. I said, boy, that's great. Would you get me one? Sure enough, two weeks later, he comes in. He brings in a case. Here's your guitar. So the short of the story is that in my closet, I must have had 10 guitars easily, maybe 12. And one day, Eric Weisberg comes down to the house. And, you know, he, we, he would teach me, you know, when I asked him, well, how do I do this? And how do I? He says, I'll come down. We'll spend an hour. And he would show me how to play various chords. And I showed him all these guitars. He says, Steve, these things have to be played. This is not stuff you just leave in a closet. 
So we went out to a place in Staten Island called the Mandolin Brothers, which is a store. I don't even know if they're still around. It was a big music store. Yeah, I'm, fr- I'm familiar with them. Yep, and you know, floors and floors of fabulous guitars. This one was played by Al Caiola, and this one was made by whatever, you know, great instruments. And I brought this little mandolin that my father had. And it seems, and I hadn't looked at it literally in years, and I opened up the case, and I looked at it, and it seems when I was 17 or 18 years old, because I was really learning to strum a mandolin. This is not like the Godfather. I don't play it like that. I played chords. I figured out how to make chords. And I was really ripping up the front of the guitar, the front of the mandolin. So I went to a plastic store. I got a piece of plastic, and I cut it out to shape like a pick guard, but a little bigger, and I screwed it into the mandolin. So the mandolin now has this little old mandolin, I can't tell you who the maker was, that my father had, but with this ugly plastic pick guard on it. And of course, I would play, and you know, what I was doing Calypso songs then, and rock, early rock and roll with folk music and stuff. And they looked at it, and they say, I said, can you take it off and, you know, fix up the other, no, they were afraid. If they would unscrew it, the thing would fall apart. Because I screwed it in with the, you know, subway train bolts. This was not, you know, a delicate thing for me. And uh, so I, yes, and I still have the mandolin in the closet, and it still plays, and I look at it, and of course I think of my father all the time. But I think about, you know, what a smartass I was. I went out there and I said, oh, yeah, I can make my own pick guard. And I screwed this piece of plastic in there. And, uh, you know, yes, I said, I think your question was now 19 minutes later. Yes, I still have the mandolin. Well, uh, my next question is also about the mandolin. It's more about the first song you ever wrote on it, Symphony for Maryland. Uh, yeah, I wrote that on a piano. Oh, that was on piano. Now you were That was on a piano. You, you were it's quite... hard to write a symphony on a mandolin. Uh, yeah, I, you know what? I wondered about that. Yeah, and, It's I... hard to write a symphony on a mandolin. Oh, man, you're... not enough notes to play. You're, you're a true writer. You're always writing. Uh, yes, there's a lot of ham in this kid from the Bronx. So about that song, was this the girl next door or the girl down the road? Yeah, she lived. Yeah, she lived in the next building. Her name was Marilyn Croft. I, you know, if anyone ever listens to this now, it's only seventy-five years later. <laughs> so, and she undoubtedly she never heard it because I was too shy. But I, that symphony for Marilyn. Well, and you know, you're not the first boy to write a song about a girl that you have affection for. History is correct. Pe- peppered with that kind of thing, when you were finally ready to start writing jingles, how do you muster inspiration for a product or for an inanimate object as opposed well, to a girl? Well, serious. I've said this, uh, you know, I've, I've said it to you and, and others a thousand times in my life. It's a business. You, you know, number one, Sammy Kahn, you know who Sammy Kahn was. Of Sammy course. Sammy was one of the great lyricists in the world. He wrote... Uh, all the way, and uh, why can't I think of him? But you know, of an era, he was the master. And Sammy, people used to say, Sammy, which comes first, the music or the lyrics? And he said, the check. <laughs> and that's a Sammy Conley. And I can't say that I was inspired to write by the fact that they were paying me, but I knew that I had to write something different, and it's got to work in 60 seconds. That's the first requirement right there. And if you write it for more than 60 seconds, I don't care who you are, and I don't care who's singing it, it makes no difference. They can't use it. It must have a beginning, a middle, and an end in six, now in 30 seconds. But those and melodies must come from somewhere. Yeah, it's a gift. 
It's talent. I like to think I'm talented. It's a gift from God or whoever you believe in. But I believe that, uh, you know, talent is something that that everybody has the ability to write. You know, I've written a couple of books, and I often talk to young writers. And I say, the first thing you have to know if you want to be a writer is to turn your phone off. That's the number one rule. And the second thing is, everyone, I believe, and, you know, I've been poo-pooed about this, but I believe everyone has the ability to tell a story in some form or another. And now when you have a computer... You can sit down in the quiet of your room and write, you know, they say the greatest exercise for a young writer is write about your first sexual experience. Serious. But write it and put a password on it. You can do that now. <laughs> a password. I'm serious. That no one will be able to open this thing except you. And you put a password on it and you write what you feel. Don't be afraid of the punctuation or the grammar or anything like that, but just write it. And I went up, met her on the street, and we walked in there, and I did, and she did. And, you know, however, just spit it out and then put a password on it and forget about it for a week. And then come back and look at it again in the privacy of your own room. So when you talk about what inspiration is, when you're writing something very personal, you have the ability today to hide it, so you're not being judged. The worst thing at all, of all for a writer or for a composer, for anyone, is to play something for someone and somebody will say, oh, that's nice, what else are you doing? You know, and, you, and, and it just puts a knife right through you. So when it comes time to, to write a piece of advertising music, I like to think it's a good piece of music. I've worked with some phenomenal singers and great players, and I like I wrote a good piece of music. Was it 60 seconds? Yes. It was in a seven-minute... Uh, you know, I talked about Salem before. I'm taking a side trip here. Salem cigarettes. George Shearing once recorded... You know George Shearing, right? I've met him, yes. Oh, wonderful. I never met him. But he did a literally 10-minute version of You Can Take Salem Out of the Country. And he went off and he did 10 minutes of jazz on that one little hook. Now, I didn't have 10 minutes, but I knew I had to make something work that sounded different. And that's the inspiration. So it's not like there's a thunderbolt that comes and, you know, the little uh, angel comes in and puts some dust on my shoulder and out comes the song. I wish it worked that way. I would sell it. Unbelievable. And, Unbelievable. And you're certainly uh, talented. There's no doubt about that. You can thank listen, you. listen to anything you've done and see that. And although your parents may or may not have recognized it at the time, they were still pushing the science. You went to a school for science. You went to Bronx School Yeah, Bronx for High School of Science. Yeah. That, that's where you met Bobby Darren, right? Correct. Were you guys friends right away? Absolutely. I had given an unaccompanied saxophone recital. You know what it is when you're 15 years old and you're playing for other 15-year-olds? An unaccompanied saxophone? Can you feel the enthusiasm, Rick? You feel, you feel it shaking the room just of it? You know? And Bobby comes up to me on the stairway. He says, hey, you want to be in a band? And I was already playing in a band. Here's the band. Trumpet, I was a saxophone player, a clarinetist, and a drummer. And then none of us could really read music, but drums, clarinet, saxophone, and trumpet. But I did this recital myself, and Bobby said, hey, you want to be in a band? And I, I kind of was a little scared, because I didn't know anybody else. And I said, yeah, he says, we, we, play, we work out on weekends, and there's a piano player and a guitar player. And, and uh, I said, can I bring the trumpet player along? He said, oh, yeah, we're looking for a trumpet player, too. And that's how it started. At the Bronx High School of Science. And everyone else was walking around with a slide rule, 
I don't know if you remember what a slide rule is, but yeah, this sure. is a major calculation. And I was walking around with my saxophone case. So it was a great experience. But I, you know, it's, uh, I was not a great student, but I met Bobby there. And it opened up a new, era, a new area. I had someone I could trust, and he trusted me. You say you played guitar, or you play guitar. Yes. You, would, you will understand the feeling that I try, try to describe it, and I never really accurately get a good description. But when you're playing with someone, and all of a sudden there's a, I don't know, an eight-bar piece, and you kind of look at each other, and you know you're in the same groove, you're in the same feeling. Yeah, synergy. Just synergy, thank you. And it just, it just works. You know, it works. What a phenomenal feeling that is. You don't need anyone in the world. I know. I, I knew. I know Paul Simon through the years. I've met him, and you know, you watch Simon Paul and Art would work together, or great comedy teams, Martin Lewis and the Beatles. And the Beatles were four guys, and they made music that rocked the world. Yeah. Oh yeah. They, they, you know, they found a certain groove with each other, and that's what I loved about Bobby. We lo- we trust you. Trust someone. That's another way to. Speak. A month ago or so, we had the great Ronnie Zito on the show. It was a wonderful uh, experience just talking to him about his career. He played with Bobby Darren. Is that how you guys yep. met? Yes, absolutely. Bobby always wanted to travel with, uh, how do I say this, with his own band, right? But with his own players, you know, a rhythm section, piano, bass, drums, or something like that. So we started out, I was a guitar player, and we, we, he was doing a folk So uh, the kind of guitar that I played, I could play calypso music and play folk songs, but I was not a a, uh, technically proficient guitar player. And we worked together for about a year, and then he went out on his own, and he finally had Splish Splash, which was his first hit record. And he started to go on the road, and he was uh, wanted to carry a drummer with him, and he could never find anybody, also couldn't afford it. But when he had Splish Splash, he was working a club up in... I think it was the Three Rivers uh, nightclub up in Syracuse. And the band, the house band, had this kid on the drums. And that was Ronnie Zito. And Bobby knew it immediately and said, come to New York, I want you to you come to New York and you'll be my drummer and I will you know, support you. And they had a lot of club dates and so on and so forth. And then Ronnie came to New York and Bobby said, I met this young drummer. And at that point I started to record my low budget movies. And I would say, hey, Ronnie, you don't want to make 20 bucks for three hours on Tuesday? Absolutely. And that's how I started working with Ronnie. And everything you have heard, Rick, and I, I'm not exaggerating, everything you've heard of mine through my career, Ronnie Zito has been the drummer, except when I worked in California. Wow. And some, sometimes I would bring Ronnie to California, just, you know, he played the drums the way I wanted to hear them. And that's, that's the best way I can describe it. You can work with the greatest musicians that you've ever heard of on a specific instrument. But if he, he, you, as a composer, I liked the way he played. I trusted him. I knew if Ronnie was on the drums, it, no, it's not going to be bad. It's always going to be good. And I give you just one, one motto, another story in my life. I once saw Frank Sinatra, where I guess it was Carnegie Hall, and Benny Goodman, the great king of swing, the clarinet, was in the audience. And Frank told the story. He said, you know, I used to work with Benny when I was a young singer. And in between every show... Benny was always practicing. He always had his clarinet in his hand. He's always noodling. He's sitting in the corner and he's playing and practicing. And one day I went up to him, Frank says, I went up and says, Benny, why do you practice so much? And Benny says, I may not always be great, but at least I know I'll be good. Wow. And to me, that was, that's a, 
profound lesson. And you want to be good at something? You know, Ben Hogan, the golfer, great golfer, used to say, people say, how did you do it? Where did the talent come from? He says, the talent is in the dirt. And what he meant was you get your ass out on the golf course and you practice. You don't need an audience. You practice holding the club. You practice holding your horn. You practice the mouth, the embouchures. You know, you learn the chords and you learn it. You, you play it until, you're, until it's part of your life. And then you look at a piece of music. Yeah, it's great advice. That's, it's amazing how simple that is. Yep, and I'm, you know, I sat there and I listened to his Frank Sinatra talking about Benny Goodman. And I saw Ronnie Zito, by the way, play with Benny Goodman one night in the Benny Goodman Quintet at a uh, nightclub. It was Benny and uh, Irby Green, you know that name? Of course. Irby was one of of the great trombone players. Irby and uh, Derek Smith, I think, was the pianist, and Ronnie was the drummer, and I think either George DeVivier or uh, Milt Hinton was the bass player. You know, I'm talking about names in the jazz world that are legendary. Legendary, yes. And there was little Ronnie Zito. Switching gears for a second, you mentioned your film music. You were doing low-budget movie scores, essentially, 60 minutes at a time. When you moved on to jingles, I mean, how do you distill your thinking into now 30-second spots? Or was that a godsend? Because it, it, it might seem to some people like less work. No, it was not less work, but it was... The goal was, you know, when I used to do these movies, I would, as I described earlier, that if you, I would write a, uh, like a, I don't know, simple melody, a 16-bar melody or something like that, and then we needed two minutes of uh, fill while the guy on the motorcycle is riding around, I want it with this kind of tempo, and the guys would ad-lib it. There's no ad-libbing in commercials. You know when you, you know, the discipline, again, I keep going back to the word discipline. The discipline is to have a complete product in 60 seconds. Then with the jingle, it tells the story, and if it was a background score, it's got to be the right mood to, to, you know, enhance the picture. Right. But it's a business, Rick. It's not, you know, I wish there were that little fairy godmother that came in and sprinkled the dust on my piano, but it doesn't work that way. That uh, makes sense. I, I totally get it. it. It's the ad business, essentially. It's not, yep. not really even the music business. It's the ad business. That's right. And to recognize that, for me, was a great important thing, that I'm not here making the people to applaud the music. I want them to applaud the commercial. When you listen, there was once, or there has been, it's out there on uh, Turner, I've seen a, an interview between... Steven Spielberg and John Williams. And John Williams is the super dean of the uh, music composers. Oh, yeah. And they talk about how they arrived at the music for this film and that film. And John always said it was not the idea of writing a piece of music that would stick out. If the music stuck out, it was the wrong music. The music has to support the picture that I'm writing. And this is what I have believed all along. If, if a piece of, unless it was sung, and when it's sung, that's got the singing has got to be the star. But when it's just a background score for something, it's got to literally be background. It makes sense, and you certainly picked up on that and ran with it with your work on jingles. But it's not the only music you've written. You actually played rock and roll music. You had a, a deal with Mercury Records at one point. I think. Oh you, yeah, you, as a kid, you were nineteen years old. I yeah, mean, at once I was, honey. You know. Well, you, you know. know. You know. Wait, wait, wait a minute. You know, you, you talk. <laughs> you talk. You gotta talk. To, talk louder. Will you? <laughs> I, I used to do, to do that, you know. Steve. And, and, they said, and, and they said, what, what? 
Something tells me you will never be old. So that's... What is that? <laughs> kiss my wife. What? <laughs> you do a great impression of an old person, but I don't Thank think you. you yourself will ever be old. You had I this. You had this hit, Matilda. It was, you know, you did pretty well. I mean, you you performed yep. this on some of the biggest TV shows of the time period. Arthur yep. Godfrey's TV show. Yep. Uh, yep. American Bandstand. You were one of the first rock and rollers on Bandstand. That's right. Dick Clark. Wow. People don't remember who Dick Clark was. Did Bobby? Some people do. I know Bobby was never on uh, Mercury. He was on Atlantic and Decca and uh, right. You know, Capital. He was on so many different labels, but he was never on Mercury. Did, was he helpful at all in, in you getting this contract, or not related? No, nope. That was completely unrelated. I mean, he he was obviously he was the singer, and I took a shot at being a singer, and I didn't have the pipes for it. One of the things people always ask me is, why don't you sing on your commercials? I say, because I want someone who sings better than I do. And I had, a, you know, when I was 19 years old and I made a couple of rock and roll records and the biggest heartbreak you can think of in the world, and it's not when a woman comes and breaks your heart, is when you put out your first rock and roll record and it doesn't sell. Mm. And a young kid, and you think you have these dreams that you're going to become a star. You're going to be the next Ricky of, Nelson, right? You got it. Don't laugh. Ricky Nelson was, you know, he was a kid. He had modest talent, but he had he was in the right place, and he made a couple of really wonderful records. But it's we all, as a kid in those days, that's what we wanted. And Bobby was off chasing his career, and I was out chasing mine. And uh, and two guys came along and said, "You want to make a record?" Sure, what time? Well, I'll be there tomorrow. Do I play on it? What do you want me to sing? You know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Want me to write a song? I'll write you a song right now. And uh, it's, you know, it's true. It sounds so corny now, but that's exactly what it was then. Ready to work any hour of the day to sing anywhere. Where, you know, where do I go? Forget about the money. Money's not important. What do I sign? Sign this. Here, that's fine. I'm out of here, you know. I want to play something from that time period. I want I want to hear what that sounds like. I want our listeners to catch a little bit of the young Steve Carmen. There's oh, I've, I've listened to some of the stuff. You got some good stuff actually, and and there's plenty of stuff worth playing. One of my favorites is "Did You Mean What You Say?" Oh my goodness! Remember that one? Vaguely. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you listen to the show, you're going to get a chance to hear it because we're going to play it right now. This is the young Steve Carmen. Check it out. Did you mean what you said when you said what you said when you said goodbye to me? Oh, I hopped into bed and I cried my eyes red. Did you mean what you said to me? Goodbye to moonlight romancing and sandwiches down at the shore. Goodbye. To kissing while dancing It won't be the same anymore uh, Did you think I could do Such a mean thing to you Like the thing that you're doing to me Now would I make you blue Would I tell you we're through When I knew you were true as can be Take it back, take it back If you love me Or I'll weep like the old willow tree and there'll be no more rainbows above me If you mean what you said When you said what you said When you said goodbye to me Did you mean what you said When you said what you said When you said goodbye to me Oh, I hopped into bed And 
that and jump tracks here okay all right i'm gonna bring up a name now somebody that may have been instrumental in you changing trajectories werner Koopen. uh yes werner was my neighbor my children were born in brooklyn and we were desperately bursting out of a one-bedroom apartment i had three kids and my dad and my brother lent me the money for a down payment on a house out in long island in rockville center Werner was my neighbor across the street, and Werner worked at a film company that filmed the uh, commercials. You know, the commercial business is a an unbelievably huge business. For uh, just only they only shoot commercials. They don't shoot movies. They don't shoot films of any kind. But only sixty or thirty second commercials. And Werner worked at a company, and he knew that I had written music. And one day he said, "You think you can write a thirty second commercial?" I said, "Absolutely. I've just been writing sixty minutes of music for movies." So he got me an interview at an agency then called Benton and Bowles. And I played my reel of my low-budget movie stuff, and he gave me the, you know, and he taught me this, the music director, taught me how to score to the picture. Because when the golf ball goes into the hole, they wanted a thing, you know, something, and you, when you do it to a film, you have to know where that is. Yeah, That's not an accident, it's a technique. And I, I learned how to do that, and Warner was responsible for getting me into the advertising business. You remember the first ad that you wrote? I think it was Maxwell House Coffee. Wow, that's a big one. Maxwell House, they, had a, they were trying to show that the jar that the coffee came in could be used for various different things. And I think it was a 30-second spot. And there were like 12 or 14 things in there. It was going to be a flower pot. You were going to be able to put a golf ball into it. It was going to be a jar for something, whatever, decorative. And every one of these hits that we got, you got to catch the hit, was at a specific place in the film. And it's not, it wasn't easy to figure out how to, uh, you know, how do you get this thing when it's uh, 12 seconds in? How do you know how many beats of music at what tempo? to play so it hits it right on the nose and I my dad was an engineer he worked for the city and he devised a system of charts and I spent two years writing a book based upon his the input of how to do this and I used it for, for my whole career and then one day somebody came out with something that had been printed on a computer that was far better and far more advanced than my little book but I learned how to do that that's technique Rick 
when you talk, again, I want to repeat what, what Benny Goodman told Frank Sinatra. I may not always be great, but at least I know I'll be good. And the good comes from practice. And you know what you do after you practice? You practice. And then you practice more, and you play, and you don't stop until you, until you do it in your sleep. That's how you get to and Carnegie I, Hall, right? That's right. It's the truth. You know how you get to Carnegie Hall? You practice. That's right. That's right. Well, that practice and that technique served you well. In fact, I want to stop the show right here briefly just to talk specifically about some of these incredible ads. I love New York. I mean, that's, dare I say, iconic now. You, you got your Budweiser yep. commercials. I mean, they're, they're just absolutely huge. Uh, when you say Bud, here comes the king, all that stuff. I mean, Nationwide is on your side. I mean, who doesn't know that? Wrigley Spearmint Gum, it was a huge, I remember that as a kid. Great American Chocolate Bar, Hershey's, I mean, that reminds me of being a kid. A lot of these do. The Imperial LeBaron, you know, was was really big. Um, Yeah, I don't, did I write that? uh, I don't think I did. Yeah. I might have. It sounds, you know, there was a time when I did 20 years in a row of Pontiac music for the Pontiac Automobile. (laughs) Now they're out of business now. A lot of Chrysler, too, I noticed. A lot of Chrysler Plymouth, right? I worked with, I don't know if uh, we talked about this, I worked with Louis Armstrong and Earl Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, 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 hold on. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to I would okay. ne- I would never leave that out. I would never leave that out. Okay. We'll, we'll get to that. But, I mean, trust the Midas touch I have here. I mean, that's, you know, yep. you know, the Chrysler 300, which is their ad campaign, was your next car. Remember that? Uh, oh, I love that song. Um now, this is kind of interesting, uh, Northwest Orient Airlines. That leads me to another thought. Are you a method actor type jingle writer? Like, did, did you drive cars and, and fly on airplanes while oh, you were... No, it, it's all just from your interestingly imagination. Interestingly enough, interestingly enough, there was one time I was asked to write for Audi. I had written for, for as I say, Pontiac for uh, almost 20 years. Every year they changed the campaign and I wrote a new song and with big productions and everything. And then Chrysler Plymouth coming through, and uh, uh, one year I was asked to write for Audi, and I, you know, like Big Shot, I tried to be a Big Shot. I said, you know, I'd like to drive the car. So they worked it out where they sent me to a dealer, and they lent me the car for the weekend. And you know what? It was a lovely car. I'm being very polite. It was very lovely. It was like any other car to me. It didn't, didn't say anything that inspired a great piece of music, and I went and I wrote something, and they rejected it. So, uh... You know, sometimes it's nice to try the product, but more than trying the product, to me, it was the goal of saying that this beer is different. This car is different. Hershey had never advertised before, and the line that the agency came up with was, Hershey is the great American chocolate bar. And since then, you've heard the Dallas Cowboys are the great America's great team or something, you know, great American this and the great American Yeah. But Hershey was the first to use that. Not just the idea of uh, knowing the product and being able to use it and understanding the benefits of the product. This is getting into advertising lingo that's a complete waste of time. But the, the benefits of a product, and I had no interest in that. I wanted to find a way to say cold 45 malt liquor in a different way than you've ever heard it before. Because my job is to keep your attention in the commercial break. When everybody's going to the bathroom, I want you to listen, stop and listen to the music. <laughs> Did you ever feel any pressure to use the products that you wrote about? Uh, no, but one time I had a conversation with uh, August Bush of Anheuser-Busch, and I had written the Budweiser, this is in the early 70s, all the Budweiser music and uh, 
Michelob was weekends were made for Michelob, and they were developing a light beer called Anheuser Light. And uh, in just in casual conversation, he asked if I ever done any other beer music. And I said, yes, I had recently written the music for National Bohemian. It's a, a big beer out of the Washington, D.C. area, Baltimore, Washington, D.C. And they had called, called 45 more liquor, and they had another ale they were developing called Wales White Ale. Anyway, when I'm telling this to August Bush, the uh, president CEO of Uber Alice of Anheuser-Busch, he didn't like the idea that his composer was working for other beer companies. Oh, okay. So uh, he, uh, the word got back to me that he looked askance on that concept. He didn't like the idea that I was writing for other beers. So I told him, okay, I wouldn't. I stopped, and then I asked him for a raise. <laughs> I'm serious, Rick. I asked him for a raise, and they refused. I didn't ask him directly through his agency, and they refused, and I refused to work for them after that. No, I don't blame you. I've worked for myself my entire life. And I've always felt that when you go to the boss and you say, you know, I think I've earned a raise, and the boss says no, you then have a choice to make. You can continue doing what you're doing, and you swallow your pride, or you tip that, and you're on your way, and you're on your own, and that's what I did. I remember writing in one of these egotistical letters. I wrote about it in one of the books that I wrote. One of these, hey, do you know who's more important to you than nobody but me, that kind of thing. Stupid. It was a stupid letter. Something that I could have accomplished in two lines and it took me three pages. Of ego. You know how important I am to you and I'm deserving of the raise and so on and so forth. If you sat on the other side of that and as part of management and you receive a letter like that from an employee, you throw it in the garbage and kick the guy's ass out of there. Yep. But I did that, but I refused to work for them after that. But it, it taught me, you know, there's a lesson of Benny Goodman again, you know. May not always be great, but at least I know I'll be good. I learned, don't do that again. Now, when you work for someone, you as a composer have the right to own your own copyright. And this is a really big deal in my world. Be before Who you... Owns the music? Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but before you get into yep. that, because my next question kind of is going to lead us there anyway, I wanted to single out a couple of your ads, one of which is Nationwide is on your side. I mean, it's... Yep. It's huge. Everybody knows it. I'd sing the melody, but I can't afford it. So if you want to just... Nationwide is on your side. There I don't get paid for that one, so that's okay. That's funny. You're singing the modern version. The original from 1968 is very slow, but everything speeds up in time. So now you hear it, and it's fast. Uh, yes, correct. I imagine it's gotten quicker over the years, but this is probably your most worldwide recognizable melody, yet it's it's the jingle that you're paid the least for. How come? Well, I was starting in business. You know, I talk to, you talk about being a composer. There is a certain amount of ego that's involved to say, what do you do for a living? Oh, I write songs. Really? You write songs? There's no heavy lifting that, is there? You know, you just you write songs. And I was a young kid, and I was wanted to get into the advertising business. And I got called by one particular agency, Ogilvy and Mather is the name of the agency. And they asked me to write something. They had this line. It's their line. Nationwide is on your side. And I went out and I wrote three versions of it. And I think they gave me $200 to go to a studio. And I got a couple of really like three or four musicians. And we went in and we recorded these short demos. And they liked the one that went nationwide is on your side. This was going to be a, this is Nationwide Insurance is a national advertiser. They're on the networks. This was a big company, and still, it's one of the, the major insuring companies. 
And I, it was going to be my music, Rick. My music was going to be their music. And they gave me this contract, and I looked at it, and it says, you know, dear Ogilvy, we own everything, you own nothing. And uh, I said, okay, where do I sign? And I signed it, and that was the end of it. And then I started to realize that, wait a minute, my music is going on and on and on, and I'm not getting paid for it as a composer. And nor am I, uh, I was for about 10 years, I produced all of their music sessions. So I would at least be on the music contract, the musician union contract, as, one, as the orchestra leader. But I was not getting paid for the use of my song. And when you hear stories today about someone like Taylor Swift fighting with uh, broadcasters and fighting to own her recordings, the actual recording, and fighting to own the copyright on the song, whether she's written it or someone else has written it, she wants to be the music publisher. This is where the money is made in the music business. And this business of getting up there in front of a stadium with 75,000 people in it and, you know, hearing tremendous applause and everything like that, this is great for some instant money. But the long-range money in the music business is made by the people who own the music, own the recordings, and own the copyrights on the song. How did you end up getting around that in the end? I described the story, as I'm just describing it to you, to an agent at William Morris, and his name was Peter, was Peter Kelly, and he's now 100 years old if he's still around. I speak to him once a year, and the last two years I haven't been able to find him, and I have a feeling he's passed. I was given uh, a name of an agent who, I had, who called me to write for, uh, he represented another agent, and he called me to write for something, and I told him the story, that everyone in the advertising business, the composers, all sing on their work. They go out at the after the music track is done and they stand at a microphone and they either join the group or they become the solo singer. And by doing that, they qualify for a union residual. This is a big deal. This is what you hear people talk about all the time, residuals, reuse payments. Uh, I said, why can't a composer do that? If, if I wrote a song and uh, Frank Sinatra recorded it, and then Tony Bennett recorded it, I would be paid for every recording as the songwriter. Uh, why can't I do that in the advertising business? He says, well, it's never been done, and he went and discussed it with another lawyer, and they came up with a contract form that allowed me, my company, to own the copyright on the music that I wrote. And I would get paid a royalty every time it was played. Not a lot, but if it was Budweiser, it did amount to a lot of money. And I would get paid every, for every performance of it. And I would not have to go out and sing on it. And as I said earlier, I, when I wanted someone to sing my work, I wanted someone who sang better than I did. I wanted, you know, Valerie Simpson or Kenny Karen or... You know, some great performer. I went to my first client, and uh, after, this is after Nationwide, and they, they wouldn't buy it. And I said, okay, you like the song I wrote. I'm not going to do it without the contract. They eventually said, you know what? With the music, they liked the music enough to go along with what I would consider the American dream. I guarantee you, someplace in the world, Bill Gates came up with this contract concept of Microsoft. And someone came up to us and said, Bill, you know, we really like this thing that you wrote. We're IBM. We want to buy it for you. How about $100 million? And Bill said, you know, yeah, you know, I really, you know, I think I want to own it myself. They said, what are you crazy? I said, no, we'll give you $200 million. How about five? No, I want to do it myself. And that's how you have the American dream. Probably one of the smartest things George Lucas ever did was to retain his, his retail rights. Correct. The merchandising rights on Star Wars. You got it. Another great story is the Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. You know, you see I Love Lucy on television on the reruns all the time. When they first shot that, 
I think, I'm not sure if I'm right on the city, but uh, CBS wanted to shoot it in Los Angeles, and Desi wanted to shoot it in New York because he was working in nightclubs. And they agreed with, he agreed to do it their way if he could own the rights to the film. And, and CBS says, what do you want to own? Nobody's going to want to watch this again. It's on Monday night at 9 o'clock. That's it. It's over. He says, well, I want to own, you know. And you're looking around, here we are, what, 80 years later? And it's running all over the place, and it's making money for someone. And, you know, someone finally said, no, I want to own my work. This is a big deal, and this is the shining motto of the complete music business today. It's not who the star is on it. Do you know that Paul McCartney could not buy back his rights on his early work because Michael Jackson paid $50 million for the early Beatles catalog? Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is a story about, you know, yeah, Michael Jackson's a big star and the Beatles are big this, but, but the music catalog today is worth billions. That's with a great big capital B. Were you one of the first jingle writers to, to do this? I think the first and unfortunately the only, because you had to go to an advertising agency and they give you their contract the same way as the people from Nationwide gave me their contract. And they say, what are you talking about? We own everything. Nobody ever asked for the rights to it before. I said, well, I'm different. I feel a little different about it. Well, we don't do that. Sorry. And, and no one ever did it. And we had a musical a music industry trade associate apart. After a while, I gave my contract form to anyone who wanted it. I said, all I want you to do is to use it. Get the concept out there that when you write something, you own it, and you license it to them to use any way they want, as long as they pay you for it. If you get $10 a year, you have done $10 a year better than you were doing before. You helped to change the business, and, and, and after all... I tried you, to change the business. Well, you, you have pioneer blood in your family, so why shouldn't you be a pioneer in your own field? Well, so. I never thought of it quite that way, but I like that. That's true. <laughs> No, I mean it. It's true. It, you, Rick, it is true. I'm not kidding. You know how you get by in this world? Progress begins with one word. No. No, I will not sign a contract where I turn over my music rights to you. How no do you, is a How do you do that? How, how does a young, starving artist who is just thrilled to be part of a national project say no? Well... You say no because you, you take the risk. Okay, they're going to find something else. What do you think? You're the only composer in the world. You know, no, we'll get somebody else. You don't want to play for the Yankees? We're not giving you enough money? We'll find somebody else. We're bigger than you. Okay, fine. Go get somebody else. I'll work somewhere else. You risk. Risk is everything. Yeah. But if you don't risk, there's no progress. And as I say, forgive me, I'm repeating myself. Progress begins with one word, No. I will not allow you to own my music. I will license it to you on the most favorable terms you could ever think of. But I want to own it because of the 20 years from now. You know, you don't know the, the side of my life. My wife, the mother of my children, died when she was 35 years old. And I realized that, and, that I had to, you know, what, what would happen if something happened to me? And I realized then that I have to be my work, my creative product that I spend all my time on, pay money for my kids. For them to grow up if something happened to me so i was you know i was working for the future i want to know that 25 years from now if someone is using uh budweiser or i love new york or something and it's i promise you and i'm not lying the amounts of money we're talking about are minuscule compared to what people get in the record business but at least there is going to be something there is a principle here that i don't have to give my my work away you cannot force me to give my work away, and that is the greatness of America. 
But on the other side of it, there's always some big company that says, yeah, that's a nice song. Screw him, get somebody else. Next. And you have to be willing to have the courage to say, okay, well, you know, we'll find out we're going to eat spaghetti this week. Fantastic, you know, Steve. That's your... That's a true story. I'm not kidding. It, it's, it's, call it, uh, I don't know, you want to call it courage, call it chutzpah, call it... But at some point, you realize, you know, why should my music not be treated with the same respect as Sammy Kahn, as Irving Berlin, as Rogers and Hammerstein, as, you know, the, these people owned their music. And they're, they're, whether they're gone or still living, their music is bringing in fortunes to people there who, who they choose, their, their estates. And it's a big deal to me. Well, I really I, admire that you fought for it. I mean, and, and I think it had an effect on, on that aspect of the business from that point forward. And for that reason, we should all be grateful. Well, I would like to tell you that, yes, I set the trend and everybody followed. But the fact is that an army of one wins nothing. I had everyone applaud it. Oh, terrific, you do that, terrific. I said, I do it? He says, no, I can't do that. I couldn't do that. They wouldn't, wouldn't hire me. Mm-hmm. And you know what's really uh, terrible about the sense of the music business today, at least in advertising, that an advertiser today can say, and we need a 30-second song about uh, Rick Z's radio show, and we're going to send it to a company in Japan, and there's somebody in Scandinavia that's going to submit one, and there's three people in Chicago, and we want it all by tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. And that's the way the world is today. You can, people can produce music at home that is as good as anything that could come out of a recording studio. So the competition today and the concept of competition is, well, what do you want something special for? Get out of here. We'll get somebody else. Yeah. And people are lining outside, panting, waiting to do the job. You know, you can't live on principle. You say that, you know, an army of one gets nowhere, but you've got to have a spark to make a fire, you know? So you Correct. were that spark to some degree, and I admire At least that. for myself. You know, I want to talk about I Love New York for a second, because this is near and dear sure. to my heart. Ronnie Zito was on the show not too long ago, and we played it, because he's the drummer on yep. it. Did you write the lyrics? I did. I mean, this is a big part of my childhood, because I, I particularly love the line, we can all go camping, because... When I was a kid, I just pictured the whole state crammed into a little camping ground, you know. And, yep, that's and, right. But well, it, I'm from New York. You know, it's funny. I, there was a time in my life when I was first married. I was 25 years old, and I wanted to become a movie star. I'm going to live in California. My wife and I went out there, and I, I could not live, say I'm a Californian. I'm a New Yorker. I've been a New Yorker, born in New York, and I'll die in New York. You know, this is I'm a New Yorker, so I do I do love New York. It's obvious from well, the song. Did Did you come up and do a lot of camping when you were a kid? You know, a lot of people from never. the city. Never. Nope. 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 I was too busy practicing guitar and writing songs about camping. And writing songs. However, with Bobby and I, Bobby, Darren, and I used to go when we were in high school, senior year in high school, we used to go out to the beaches out on Long Island and Jones Beach and. Reese Park and places like that. And I would bring my guitar, just like right out of the movies. No case, no nothing, carrying the guitar over my shoulder, and we'd sit on the beach and we'd start singing songs. And of course, all the girls came by. This was, you know, having a guitar and being 18, 19 years old was a, was a wonderful tool for attracting the opposite sex. Ah, uh, yes. Let me tell you. You don't have time tonight, today, to talk about this because we do a 40 hour show on this. Very easily. I'll never forget Miss What's-Her-Name, you know. Let's talk about Milton Glaser for a second. Milton yes. Glaser, he, he designed the logo for that 
ad campaign. How important yeah. is, is there a, there's obviously a team of people that come together to produce something like this. You held down the music and the lyrics. You had Milton Glaser. I mean, how important is all of that to the whole as opposed to just the music? Uh, well, I like to think that, I, first of all, I've never met, I never met Milton. We, he passed about a month ago, I think. And uh, he was in his 90s, and I'm not quite up there yet, but in all the, all the experiences that I had with I Love New York, I never met him. But I do know the story about how he developed a logo that they wanted. The, the advertising agency was called Wells Rich Green then, and I had done a lot of work for them, for Ford and for Trust the Midas Touch and, uh, oh, uh, 20 years worth of, you know, network stuff, a lot of things. And uh, they needed a favor. New York, New York State had no money. And my friend Charlie Moss called me and he said they want to develop an advertising campaign, and they have an idea called I Love New York because everybody says it. Governor Hugh Carey at that time says, you know, why don't you get people to say, I love New York? There was a great financial crisis in the mid-70s, and we want to engender people's interest in coming to New York State. So I went home, and I sat down at the piano, and I wrote something. I think I had $1,500 to go and do a demo, and I did my demo, which is, I think, what you played when Ronnie was on. That was the demo of it. We'll all go camping. We could climb a mountain, that kind of stuff. And why? Because I love New York. And... The Milton was in a taxi cab one day, and he had written, a, he had drawn a logo that said "I," and next to it was the little word "love," L-O-E, and underneath it was "N-Y." I love N-Y, and he's riding in a cab one day, and he gets the idea, you know, to replace the word "love" with a heart would be great. And they called Charlie at the agency, but they had already gone to print with one of these things. It was it was in, it was in the works already. And Milton says, you got to stop now. I got something. I have to come right over. And he went to the agency and he drew it for him right there. I heart NY. And that became the logo. And when the logo, the visual logo ended with the whole chorus singing, I love New York, it was a marriage. And it worked wonderfully. Whether one was more important than the other, you know, I took my kids to the Middle East once, and uh, many years after that, and there was a bumper sticker that says, I heart Cairo. So, uh, you know, <laughs> the heart, and in the beginning, it's a true story, New York State chose not to trademark the I heart NY logo, oh, because man. they wanted everybody to use it. Yeah, now everyone uses you know? it. Yeah, you can, but now they went, for years later, they, you know, trademarked it, so you, if you wanted to use it now, I think you'd have a legal problem. I mean, it may as well but be it, like the smiley face, you know, it's everywhere. Correct. So the, whether the song or the logo was more important, and uh, one was more important, it doesn't matter. It was a marriage, and that's what makes for a hit. No one could ever have predicted that, uh, I don't know, I guess you start with a great script like The Godfather, but nobody knows it's going to really be that epic piece of work. It takes time to establish an epic. And the, the logo has lasted on I Love New York, and the music has lasted. You know, it keeps on rolling. And Nationwide has lasted, and they don't pay me a nickel. <laughs> and I'm sorry to hear that. I'm so sorry to hear yeah, that. Yeah, I know, but don't, don't cry for me. You, you ever get bitter when you hear it? No. No. They'll, believe it or not, there was a time when I said, wait a minute. Because I, I told them years, I had told you I had written all the background scores for all of their advertising for at least 10 years. And I went to them and said, I want a residual. And I had signed this contract, so I had no legal right to it. And they said, no. And I said, I can't work for you anymore. And they said, okay. 
and they went and started hiring every composer in town. And, you know, for years, all the commercials with all the background scores and everything that went on and ended nationwide is on your side. The other people got paid for it. And I, you say about being bitter, I cannot say that learning a lesson is bitter because that's how you learn. I made, it was not a mistake. It was a, at the moment, it was the right thing to do because it gave me, first of all, 10 years of employment. It gave me recognition all over the country that I'm the guy that wrote that. Everybody in the industry anyway knew that. The fact that I couldn't get a residual out of it, well, I didn't let that happen again, Rick. And I learned, as I said earlier, I learned to tip my hat and say thank you, but no thanks. I own my music. I'll make you the best deal you can possibly have, but I want to own it. And wow. if you use it, you have to pay for it. Well, that's perspective. I'm not surprised so it, that, it, that you feel that thank way. Thank you, but there's no bitterness there. I mean, it's, it's, this is education. And I learned, and I've got to be willing, I won't make that mistake again. Well, back to I Love New York, because they're both just iconic at this point. I want to play I Love New York for our listeners, just to bring it all Great. back. And to be honest with you, I'm really playing this to make the other 49 states a little jealous. Ah, uh, good for you. <laughs> You're planning a long vacation, or just a day or two. You're finally on vacation. You're wondering what to do. You want someplace that's different. You want someplace that's special. You can have a great vacation in New York. You've been listening to part one of Here Comes the King, Steve Carmen, on The Rick Z Show. Don't forget to come back next week. There's so much more to come, and you don't want to miss it.